All righty. Well, good afternoon, everybody. When the you sound like you're in a uh, semi coma after that wonderful lunch there. So, well, it's good to be back with you. This is my uh, last chance to to be with you, and I want to just thank you for your good attention you gave to the presentations last night, and looking forward to our time uh, together uh, today. Um, Find your notes that are entitled Data Gathering that is Organized, Systematic, and Extensive. And uh, let's bow together in prayer and ask for God's help, okay? Father, I ask that you'd help us now uh, to give careful attention to this subject. I pray that what I teach would be generally beneficial to these individuals in their counseling ministry and would strengthen their ministry of the word. We ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. All righty, find your notes, please, that are entitled Data Gathering that is Organized, Systematic, and uh, Extensive. I want to begin this subject. Okay, I'm not moving here. There it came up. Okay. It's just slow. Okay. All right. Uh, I just want to start with a, um, a case study that was part of what helped motivate the, the preparation of this particular uh, lesson. And uh, this was from somebody that I was uh, supervising, and it was a female counselor with an adult female counselee. And... Uh, the counselor had the personal data inventory sheets uh, prior to the session, and through the PDI, she had noted that the counselee was uncertain regarding salvation, even though she reported being raised in a Christian family. And the counselor also noted that the woman was separated from her husband. So at the beginning of the session, and and I know this because I listened to the recording of this session, at the beginning of the session, the counselor stated, my goal before we get started is to help you please God. And then the counselor explained the procedures that she was going to use in the session, and she referred to Galatians 6.1, that if anyone's overtaken in a fault, you are spiritual, try to restore such a one, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And at three minutes and 49 seconds into the session, she read from a document that outlined a commitment to biblical counseling. And um, the counselee uh, talked of receiving counseling at another place. Um, Nine minutes into the session, the counselor asked the counselee to sign the document uh, about the agreement to do biblical counseling as opposed to the kind of counseling she had received. And um, the counselee in this context is when she revealed that she had been in an abusive relationship. So the counselor began the data gathering process, and at 29 minutes and 30 seconds into the session, the counselor asked the counselee, Are you saved? And the answer was uh, fuzzy, not real definitive. So the counselor explained uh, the plan of salvation. 
And then because she knew that the counselor had questions about eternal security, the counselor went into an explanation about eternal security. And then she said, I want us to look at what the Bible says about marriage, and then we will talk about what the Bible says about divorce. And um, began teaching on marriage and began teaching uh, basically against uh, the concept of divorce. And at 54 minutes and six seconds into the um, session, when in response to the counselor urging the woman to reunite with her husband, the counselee said, I can't reunite with my husband. And the counselor said, why not? She said in response, and this is, you know, almost an hour into the session, the counselee said, uh, I have a restraining order for him for the last four years because of the way he physically abused me. And the second reason is he's in jail right now and he's going to prison for probably 10 to 15 years for crimes he's committed. And uh, at an hour and four minutes, the session ended and the counselee never returned. Now, that's an illustration of poor data gathering. And because of the poor data gathering, <laughs> the efforts of counseling, uh, we would say are poor or pitiful. All right? So here's what I want you to think about. Poor information gathering methodology has a wide impact. There's a big ripple effect from this. So think, first of all, about the impact on the counselee. You realize, don't you, that every time you counsel somebody, particularly in the first session, that they're forming a view of of not just a view, but they're forming a view of biblical counseling. And oftentimes they're forming a view of your church, they're forming a view of God, they're forming a view of the Bible. Um, And this counselee's view of the counselor and all these made her think, I'm not going back there. But also, this had a tremendous impact on the counselor. Uh, this was a lady that was in beginning in supervision, and uh, part of the requirements is that uh, with the people I supervise, that they have to listen to the recording before we discuss it together. And when I asked her if she listened to it, she said yes, and she said it was hard. And um, she told me that after listening to it, she thought, I probably need to drop out of supervision and I probably need to quit counseling. Because she had enough knowledge to know um, she blew it. But also think about the impact that this has on biblical counseling. To think about it in a different realm, haven't all of us talked to somebody where we're trying to talk to them about Christ and about Christianity and everything, and they've rejected, they tell us, well, I used to work with a guy, or I had a neighbor that was a Christian, and if that's what Christianity is, I don't want anything to do with it. Haven't we all had that? You know how the biggest excuse some people have for considering Christ is somebody who was a poor representative of Christ. Well, the same thing has happened in counseling. Over the years as I've traveled and been at different places speaking on biblical counseling topics, 
and I've met different people, and I've had a number of people tell me, for many years I rejected the whole concept of biblical counseling because of, and then they start talking about a professed biblical counselor that did lousy work. Right? So I'm, I'm just wanting to say to you, it's not just the counselee that gets dinged in a situation like that. It's Christianity, and it's the wider scope of biblical counseling. And then the last one that I mentioned is certainly uh, the view that people have of the Lord Jesus Christ, his word, and his church. And um, all of this grows out of just poor information methodology. Now, let me pause and say that the woman I'm telling you about, and for a name, I'm going to call her Brenda. Uh, Brenda was a godly woman who had gone through significant trials in her own life, including uh, the loss of her husband and being a single parent and raising children. And she's a faithful member of her church. Her pastor spoke of her in the highest of glowing terms. I mean, she's a, what I would say, she's a good woman that any pastor would want to have in his church and have the joy of shepherding. And so there was no, no question about her personal love for Christ, her commitment to biblical counseling. The problem was with her methodology, you see. So with that in mind, the point I want to make is poor information gathering methodology has a wide impact. The ripple effect goes wide. So with that in mind, let's talk about the six key skills in excellent biblical counseling. And this, these are the six areas where the rubber meets the road. In other words, you can have all kinds of good training. You can have a strong belief in the Bible and um, commitment to biblical counseling. But just because you believe good things and right things doesn't necessarily mean you're skilled. These are the areas where the rubber meets the road or where your commitments work out in life. First one is gathering relevant information. Gathering relevant information. And... Uh, <clears throat> Part of what is involved in good biblical counseling is we take the time to gather information and do it well. Um, we'll talk about some verses that motivate that a little bit later. A second one is is discerning the problems. And after you do a good job gathering data, then you've got to think of all that I've heard, what are the main problems that need to be addressed here? What are we going to work on and how do we divide them up? And then you must build involvement. And building involvement means that as a counselor, you do some things on purpose to establish the kind of relationship with the counselee where they will not only tell you what their problems are, but then they will let you tell them what they ought to do about the problems. And you cannot assume in our culture, you cannot assume that just because somebody made an appointment to come see you at a counseling center that they want you to tell them what to do, particularly if people have been in other forms of, like, have been in secular counseling, because several forms of, of secular counseling really offer, operate off the premise that the counselees, the solution to the counselees' problems are within them. And the counselor's job is just to get the answers to bubble to the surface, and then you reinforce them. And so a lot of secular counseling is just kind of designed to make the person feel good, to be affirmed, 
to have a more positive view of themselves and so forth. And some are what we would call non-directive counseling. Non-directive counseling means that you, know, you get the answers to bubble up. Well, biblical counselors, we are directive counselors. I mean, we tell people how to think, how to act, what your motives should be, because that's what the Bible does. I mean, the Bible tells us how to think, how to act, and what our motives should be. So if you minister the scriptures, you're going to be a directive counselor. And that means that in our culture, we need to make it a point that we build involvement with our counselees. We, we do things on purpose to gain their trust, gain their confidence, so that after we have heard their story and we're ready to begin advising them on how to think, how to act, what they should do, they will listen to us. That's what it means to build involvement. And then the fourth um, key skill in the biblical counseling process is to give hope. And we give hope not on ourselves, but we serve the God of hope. We believe the scriptures offer hope. And um, every counselee needs hope. I mean, every counselor needs hope. And one of the things that we've got to do in our counseling methodology is to provide hope to our counselees. And then number uh, point E, we've got to provide biblical instruction. We must provide biblical instruction. And um, I just would say to you that um, whenever you're doing formal biblical counseling, your Bible ought to be opened and used. Um, and your counselee after session one, because most people don't bring a Bible to session one, but they ought to be instructed in all the future sessions, bring your Bible and you ought to make it a point that the Bible is always opened and used. And uh, if you're not careful about this, it's easy to have a whole hour of Jesus talk, church talk, homework review, uh, all those kind of things, and the Bible never be opened. In fact, just recently I uh, was talking with one of the people I'm supervising, and that had happened with her. And um, I gently said to her, what are your thoughts about that? And she said, I just, uh, I was troubled by it when I realized what had happened. And I said, well, I'll tell you what I did when it happened to me. I repented. <laughs> I said, that's never going to happen again when I'm doing formal counseling. Now, I'm saying formal counseling as opposed to informal counseling. You know, when people catch you in the parking lot or in the hallway and want to ask a question or something, uh, your Bible doesn't always have to be open then, but when you're doing formal counseling, when you're meeting to deal with problems, purpose that the Bible will always be open and it's going to be used. We're going to provide instruction. And then you need to provide uh, or assign helpful homework. Assign helpful homework. What I'm a, I've kind of moved away from using the term homework, and now I like to call it a change and growth plan. And um, there ought to always be a change and growth plan that you're going to provide. Now, what I'd like you to, to think about and consider with me is to consider the domino effect of this. You know, first of all, there's data gathering. The data gathering leads to problem discernment. That leads to scripture selection. The scripture you choose to use is going to lead to the homework. And doing all of these things well then leads to building involvement and giving hope. So the point I want to make is it all goes back to data gathering. The information you gather is going to help you to decide what are the problems that need to be addressed here. The problems you think need to be addressed are going to determine what scriptures you turn to, 
What scriptures you turn to is going to influence what you're going to put in the homework. And doing all of those well, as I said, leads to building involvement and giving hope. The point is there is a domino effect. Just like in the story I told you with Brenda, the domino effect ended up being bad because the start was bad. The data gathering was bad. Is that clear? How these, there's a progression here? Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's turn our attention. Let's just talk about what are some scriptures that ought to motivate thorough uh, data gathering. And, um, you know, there's four of them I'm going to try to underline in your thinking. And here's the first three, and it's Proverbs 18, verses 13, 15, and 17. And you folks are obviously interested in biblical counsel. I mean, this is an advanced track. So you're obviously seriously interested, and I would urge you, if you've not yet underlined these verses in your Bible, to get that done. And if you've not yet memorized them, I would urge you to do that. In fact, for people that I supervise that are pursuing certification with ACBC, one of my requirements is you have to memorize eight different passages of Scripture. These three are one of the eight. So what what does this passage say? Proverbs 18, verse 13 says, uh, One who gives an answer before he hears it, it is foolishness and shame to him. Um, I have said for years that I think this is the most frequently violated verse by beginning biblical counselors. Beginning biblical counselors typically are way too quick to tell people how to rearrange their thinking, rearrange their behavior, Way too quick to tell people that before they've taken time to really hear their story and understand their circumstances well. Uh, uh, He who gives an answer before he hears, it's folly and shame to him. Then two verses later, verse 15 says, The mind of the discerning acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. And I just want to emphasize that part. It's the ear of the wise that seeks knowledge. It's the mind It's not the tongue, okay? When I was growing up, uh, my father, who was not, who dropped out of high school um, and did not finish high school, but who, after World War II, became a successful businessman and small business owner and uh, was a faithful Christian in our local church, while he was not well-educated, he had a lot of biblical knowledge and a lot of just common sense. And he had a way of sometimes capturing biblical truth and putting it in his own way. And one of the things he taught us four children was this. When your mouth is moving, you ain't learning. And he was urging us to listen. And that Proverbs 18.15 would do that. Then Proverbs 18.17 says... The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. In other words, there's always two sides to every story. And if you only hear one side, you're going to have a, a view that's out of balance. Proverbs 18, verses 13, 15, and 17. I highly recommend those for meditation and memorization. And then another passage I would draw your attention to is Proverbs 20, verse 5, which says, A plan in the heart of a person is like deep water, 
but a person of understanding draws it out. And that means that um, what's deep in a person's heart, their thoughts, has to be drawn out. And we draw it out not by talking to them as much as by asking questions and listening well. Uh, a third passage, and one that you're probably more familiar with, is Philippians 2, 3, and 4. This passage says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind consider one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. And looking out for the interest of others is going to prompt us to ask questions and to listen well. A fourth scripture that I'd want you to think about is James 1.19. Uh, this well-known passage says, Everyone is to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Quick to hear, slow to speak. So there's, I want you to see there's both multiple passages, both Old Testament and New Testament, that would encourage us to be good listeners. And when we're working with people, particularly in a counseling session, and especially in uh, the first session, when you're doing the bulk of the data gathering, you want to really be careful that you ask adequate questions to really understand the person's circumstances and to understand it thoroughly. All right, let's move on. We're talking about data gathering that's organized, systematic, and extensive. So let's turn our attention now and consider how could you gather information prior to the first session. And uh, I have three uh, suggestions for you in this regard. First of all, uh, I would urge you to use the personal data inventory and um, ask individuals requesting counseling to complete a personal data inventory. This is particularly helpful when the counselee is someone you do not know or you do not know well. And um, was a personal data inventory as part of the notes that were printed for you? You see that? Okay. So uh, turn to that right now, and let's just review it. When, uh, when I get a personal data inventory, I mean, I read the whole thing, but there's some parts of it that I think are particularly uh, meaningful. Um, I look down under, uh, you know, I lo I'll pay attention to, of course, their name, where they live, their occupation. I do pay attention to their uh, birth date or their age. And their marital status, I look at their education. Sometimes a person's educational level will give you some suggestion about how much, how they're going to respond to reading assignments or maybe memorization assignments, give you a little bit of an idea. I look down under health information. I look at that particularly. And um, I look down partway about below the middle. Are you presently taking medication? If so, What? And have you used drugs for other than medical purposes? And then uh, are you willing to sign a release of information so that your counselor may write for social, psychiatric, and medical reports? Um, if a person says no, that would suggest to me that there's probably something there that they don't want me to know. Maybe that will come out in another way, but I look at that. Then down at the bottom, see where it says religious background? I, I look at that, see what their denominational preference is. And a person's denominational preference sometimes can be a little bit of a, a hint 
about the kind of theological emphasis that they've had in the past. For example, if they have come from a more of a charismatic type background or an Arminian type background, that will influence how they view and how they handle uh, certain things. Or if they come from more of a, the kind of background that would be characteristic of, of this church and so forth. And I look at their church attendance, their religious background of the spouse if they're married, and then look at these questions. Do you consider yourself a religious person, and do you believe in God? Yes, no, and so forth. I pay attention uh, to that. And then on the next page, the second question is, uh, are you saved? Yes, no, and so forth. And then how often do you read the Bible? So forth. And then down under personality information, see where that is, the top of page, the top of the page there. Have you ever had psychotherapy or counseling before? Yes or no. If yes, list the counselor and therapist and the dates. And I want to look for that. One of the things that I have observed during my lifetime is that there has been a major shift in the attitude of Christians about getting counseling. Uh, back when I started in vocational Christian ministry, if a Christian was getting counseling back then, they would typically try to hide it. It was kind of viewed as an embarrassment and so forth. And since then, in the 40-some years since then, um, that has totally changed. Now people get counseling, and it's not, it not only is not an embarrassment, it's almost a badge of honor. You know, yeah, I'd love to have lunch with you on Tuesday, but that's when I see my therapist. Could we do Wednesday? And uh, so, so that's one thing. People are much more open about receiving counseling. The other part is I have observed that if people tell me that they've received counseling previously, they typically have seen more than one counselor because for multiple reasons. Part of it is secular counseling doesn't work. It doesn't satisfy the deepest needs of people's hearts and their souls and so forth. People can get some measure of help maybe, but it doesn't satisfy the deepest longings of the heart. So what I've learned is if people tell me that they've been in other kind of counseling, I've learned to ask as part of my data gathering four key questions. And let me just suggest these to you. And let's just for illustration purposes, let's say that I'm meeting with somebody and they tell me that in the past, they've, they said, uh, maybe they'd say 12 years ago, they saw a secular counselor. And then let's say they say uh, eight years ago, I saw a Christian integrationist counselor. And then they say, and four years ago, I saw an ACBC certified counselor. All right. So if, if I learned that or I had the information to prompt me to ask the questions or talk about it, here's what I'm going to ask them. Number one. Ten years ago, when you went to see a secular counselor, question number one, what was happening in your life that prompted you to seek counseling? Number two question is, what was the diagnosis? What did the counselor tell you was wrong with you? Number three, what was the treatment plan? What did they tell you to do about it? And question number four is, what happened? And I'll hear, hear that. And then I'll say, okay, now, you said eight years ago you went to see a Christian integrationist. Question number one, what was going on in your life at that point that prompted you to seek counseling? Number two, what was the diagnosis? What did they tell you is wrong with you? Number three, what did they tell you to do about it? And number four, what happened? 
And then, you know, four years ago, you went to see an ACBC certified counselor. Question one, what was going on in your life that prompted you to seek counseling at that point? Question two, what was the diagnosis? What did they tell you was wrong with you? Three, what did they tell you to do about it? Number four, what happened? All right? Now, part of the reason this is important is because not only are people seeing in our culture, are people frequently having been to another, seen a counselor, but every model of counseling has, uh, to some degree, its own terminology, its own language, including biblical counseling. And people today, more than ever before, will self-diagnose. They'll come in and ask for counseling. You'll say, well, glad to see you. How can I help you? Well, I'm OCD. Or I'm bipolar. Or, okay, somebody told them that. Right? And it's helpful for you as part of your data gathering to go back and say, okay, when were you given that label? You notice my terminology. I didn't say when did you become When were you given that label, and how long ago, and how has that been influencing you? So this question on the the personal data inventory, have you received psychotherapy or counseling before, yes, no, and the counselor, the therapist, and the dates? And I have found that oftentimes there's not enough room for people to list the counselors that they've seen. So um, this personal data inventory can be very, very uh, helpful. On the next page, there's a question about uh, asking people to give information about any previous marriages. And as you know, we live in a culture where oftentimes people do not marry. They just live with somebody. They have a significant other for a period of time. And so hearing about that. And then information about the children uh, where you're trying to find out, are the children yours or from a previous relationship? Uh, The personal data inventory can be very, very helpful. And my advice to you is that um, you not give the personal data inventory to somebody that you know and certainly not to a relative. And the reason is it's going to be offensive. I mean, it asks for your name, your address, your spouse's name, your age. And if you start handing out that to people that you know, uh, they're going to say, okay, so you go to a counseling conference and now you're handing out forms, huh? And it's just going to be a turnoff. But if you're counseling through your church and there's people coming from the community, people you don't know, then you want to use this to get as much information as you can ahead of time. So number one in our outline, use the personal data inventory. All right, moving on. Number two in our outline is the basic information questionnaire. And uh, that's the sheet that follows in your outline the, the personal data inventory, and you'll notice it has five questions on it. Question one is, what is the main problem as you see it? What brings you here? Question two is, what have you done about it? Did you find your basic information questionnaire? Everybody find it now? Okay. So uh, question one, what is the main problem as you see it? What brings you here? Question two, what have you done about it? Question three, what can we do? What are your expectations in coming here? And then question four, as you see yourself, what kind of a person are you? Describe yourself. And then number five, is there any other information we should know? And um, I find this sheet, these five questions, to be very, very helpful to me. In fact, my custom was 
that when I was working at the training center in, in Lafayette and um, all the people, almost all the people that came for counseling are people I didn't know. And when the secretary would give me a folder with all the forms filled out and the medical release and all that stuff, I'd go through the, the forms until I found the basic information questionnaire. And back then, we printed all these on pink paper. I'd just sort through it all until I found the pink sheets, and I'd pull them out. And what I found was by reading this and reading these five questions, oftentimes you start getting some great insight into the kind of people you're going to be talking to. I remember one time I, uh, the secretary told me I had a new case, and she said it's going to be about marital issues. So I got the folder, and I sit down at my desk, and I start going through it, and I pull out the pink sheets, and the husband's ended up on top. And so I read it first. Question one, what is the main problem as you see it? What brings you here? He wrote communication problems. And number two, what have you done about it? He wrote, tried to communicate. Uh, number three, what can we do? What are your expectations in coming here? He had two or three big question marks. Uh, number four, as you see yourself, what kind of a person are you? He wrote, Christian, love my wife, struggle to communicate. And then number five, is there any other information we should know? He had two or three more big question marks. So then I pull out his wife's, and there with full sentences, with the rest of the answer on the back. <laughs> so, you know, you just looked at the pink sheets and said, okay, I know. If I need to know something, I know who to ask. You know? So now, <clears throat> the basic information questionnaire, I found to be very helpful and something that you can use even with, with friends. Uh, I know when I was a pastor, sometimes... Um, people be walking out after service and they come up and say, Pastor, so we, we, we really need to get some time with you. Our teenager is driving us nuts and we need some help. And I say, okay, let me go get my calendar. And I go get my calendar, but I'd also go get two pink sheets, two of the basic information questionnaires. And I'd say, here, fill this out and bring it back tonight for the evening service. And um, then we'll schedule time to get together. And I just found that just having people answer these five questions particularly the top four, it just helps you summarize. I mean, what are we going to be talking about? Is this about pornography, anger, fear, worry, school, performance in school? I mean, what are we going to be talking about? And these are non-offensive questions. In fact, I would suggest, particularly for those of you that might view yourself as kind of a beginner in biblical counseling, I would encourage you to write these five questions in the back of your Bible one of the paper, paper pages back there, because what oftentimes happens as people learn that you're interested in biblical counseling and you're willing to spend time with people, they're going to stop you, you know, at times walking out of a service and say, hey, can I, can I talk to you for just a minute? And you say, sure. And, and about two minutes later, you realize, you know, I think I'm just beginning a counseling session right now. And it's helpful until you get used to these questions, just to be able to look to the back of your Bible and say, well, let me ask you something. What, what do you think is the main problem? Or, and what, what, what have you done about it? And if we were to talk, I mean, what would you want me to do? And just those questions, having them there to prompt you could be, could be very, very helpful, helpful to you. So uh, consider uh, the merits of that. Okay, let's move on. Number three, uh, I would advise you, I think it's wise to have the completed forms in your possession at least 48 hours prior to the session. 
This gives you time to prepare well, especially for further data gathering. Uh, if you're, particularly if you're a beginner in biblical counseling or you just don't have a lot of experience under your, your belt yet, you're going to be nervous, you're going to be uptight, and um, I, I just would advise you that you say to people, if they ask to talk to you, say, okay, let me have you fill out this form, get it back to me, and after I get the forms, I'll schedule the time with you. And people will sometimes say, well, we really need to talk to somebody right away. And my response is, say, well, fill out the forms right away and get them back to me. <laughs> and uh, then we'll schedule a time to get together. If you don't do that, and if you're not hard-nosed about that, what will happen is people will say, well, look, we need to get something scheduled. And so out of your desire to help people, you'll agree to talk to them in two or three days. And they'll say, oh, yeah, we'll get the forms back to you. But they won't. Typically, they won't. Or what will happen oftentimes is they will bring them to the session half filled out and hand them to you. Well, what are you going to do then? I mean, you're already nervous. I mean, you're going to sit there and read it while they're staring at you? No, all it does is just heighten your nervousness. So the way you would address that is just say to people, look, I'm sure what we're going to be talking about are things that are really important to you. And I want to prepare well. I want to do my very best to help you. That means I need some time to think, pray, strategize, and to come to the session well-prepared. So fill out the forms, get them back to me, and after I have them, we'll schedule a time a couple days later. And give yourself at least 48 hours to think, pray, study, ask questions of somebody that's more experienced if you need to. But I would argue, and I say to the people I supervise, one of the most tangible ways you can demonstrate your love for Christ and your love for your counselees is that you go into the session well-prepared. You're not just winging it. And so I do that. All right, let's move on. I've offered some suggestions on how to gather information prior to the first session. Now let's talk about some major areas of life to explore in the first session, and this is called extensive data gathering. And what I have listed for you are eight areas, and this is the order in which I would advise you to gather your data. Now, here's the, let me explain the reasoning behind this. And for just a moment, I'd like to have your eyes. What brings people in to see us or request time for us to meet us as a counselor is usually they've got one or maybe two issues that are motivating them to ask to talk to a counselor. But nobody only has one or two issues going on in life. And as the illustration with Brenda pointed out, while one or two things are motivating the person to come out, come in, there's oftentimes stuff going on in other areas of life that's influencing those number one or number two. So I have found that it's very wise to say to my counselees, I want to get to know you, and um, I want to just kind of get, and the phrase I use is, I want to get the lay of the land, what your life is like. Or I want to get the big picture, what your life is like. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start by doing extensive data gathering. It's extensive. It's big. It's broad. And so I'm going to ask questions about your life history. Ask them to give me a life history beginning from where they were born and raised. Then I'm going to ask some questions about their uh, husband-wife relationships or significant others. Then some questions about parent-child areas. Then I'm going to ask some questions about their work or school 
obligations and sometimes their finances. Then I'm going to ask about any health concerns. Then I'm going to ask about who's influencing them in life, who or what's influencing them in life. Then I'm going to come back and talk about the current concerns that brought them in. I just rattled off eight areas in what could be called the wheel of life or the circle of life, or it's the, the big picture of what's going on in people's life. So I would encourage you to consider the merits of using this particular outline. Ask people to give you a life history. I think when I mentioned I forgot to mention their, you're going to ask about their religious background or their spiritual life. I should not have missed that one. And then you're going to ask about husband and wife, past relationships, marriages, then about parent-child relationships, then about work-school finances, then about physical health status issues, then influencers like friends, social media, music, favorite TV programs, so forth, and then presentation problems. That's called extensive data gathering. If when people come in and they tell you, for example, well, I've got a problem and my, my, my main problem is I have a husband who is irresponsible and he just doesn't work very hard and we're struggling financially because he doesn't work very hard. If that's the presentation issue and you just go after that and you don't do this kind of information gathering that I'm talking about, oftentimes the advice you're going to give in response to that is going to appear to be foolish. Just like in the story of Brenda, I mean, she's preaching away or talking to this lady about reuniting with her husband. <laughs> There's a restraining order, and he's at the county jail going to the state prison. I mean, it's just foolish. The counsel was foolish. Not because she wasn't sincere, but because she hadn't asked enough questions, you see? That's why you want to get the lay of the land, major areas to explore in the first session. Then after that, I would advise you to develop three to seven. I got all these listed here. Let me catch up here. I would encourage you to develop three to seven probing questions to ask in each of the eight areas. This is called intensive data gathering. So let me give you two illustrations of intensive data gathering. So we're going to talk about the life history. So you may say to the person, um, I want you to tell me your story, and I want you to give me the helicopter view of your life. I don't want the ground-level view. I want the helicopter view. You know, on ground level, we get all kinds of details. Helicopter view, we get kind of the high points. We don't get all the details. And I want you to start with where you were born and raised, what kind of home you were raised in, then put your life together in, you know, maybe a five- or ten-year segments up until the, the present. And uh, you can ask, where were you born? What were your early years like? Describe your elementary school years. What were they like? What was your life like in high school? Tell me about the significant people or events that impacted your life after high school. Uh, and then point E, tell me about a couple of accomplishments that are happy memories as you've been growing up. And then tell me about a couple of sad or hurtful events that have impacted your life. Now notice, there's seven questions just about the life history. But as the people answer those questions, you're going to learn a lot about them and the things that have shaped their life and so forth. Um, <clears throat> here's another area to probe. And I'm trying to illustrate what... Um, I'm trying to illustrate what 
intensive data gathering would be. Uh, let's say you're going to talk to them about their religious, their religious background or their spiritual, their spiritual life. Uh, here are, <clears throat> I think, eight questions that I would encourage you to use. And these are the ones that I seek to use. Have you come to a place in your spiritual life where you could say with confidence that if you were to die that you would go to heaven? Uh, some of you will recognize that this, these are, this is question number one from Evangelism Explosion. And this is designed to see if a person thinks they're saved. If the person says, yes, I've come to the comp point where I think I'm going to heaven, then I will ask, if yes, then tell me about that time when you came to that assurance and what led you to that confidence. And the follow-up question after that is, what impact did that experience have on your lifestyle? Because you remember, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. And no change, no Christ. If you have Christ, things change. So I want to know that. And I'm trying to discern, was this just a religious experience or was the person genuinely born again? And then question B would be, if you died and stood before God and he asked you, why should I let you into my heaven, what do you think you would say? Uh, this is the evangelism explosion question number two. The first question is designed to find out, does the person think they're going to heaven? The second question is designed to find out, why does the person think they're going to heaven? And then point C, if a coworker or a neighbor asks you, what is the gospel, what would you say? By the way, this is a question I picked up from one of the people I supervised. I think this is a great question to ask. And, um, and then how many times did you read your Bible last week? And how many times did you read your Bible the week before that? And again, we're looking for not just a profession of faith in Christ, but we're looking, are there, are there things in the individual's life that would suggest they've been truly born again? Yes? No. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're asking a series of questions, trying to discover is the person born again. So I'm at this point. I'm not responding, and I'm. In fact, I'll later. I'll talk a little bit about that. Okay. Uh, but yeah, we're asking these questions. So I'm going to ask the question next: Is um, uh, how many times did you read your Bible last week? How many times did you read your Bible the week before that? And then I like to ask, what is your favorite Bible verse? Uh, quote it to me. And then, are you a member of a church? Yes or no? If they say yes, I ask, why did you choose to join that church? What, what do you like about your church? And, you know, some people say, well, they have a great youth group. It's wonderful for our kids, or um, <clears throat> it's close to home, or it's where we were married, or grandma and grandpa were buried there, or we love the architecture, Sometimes there's great music program, um, sometimes great preaching. But you want to find out, why are you a member of that church? And then if they say, no, we're not a member of a church, I want to ask, why have you not joined a church? When a person is telling me that they're a Christian. And in my mind, if you're a follower, a serious follower of Christ, you will join a Bible-believing, Bible-preaching church, ideally a Bible-practicing church. And um, if not, I want to know why not. And then I want to ask, in what ministries are you serving? Because I personally believe that a serious follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just going to attend church and maybe even join one, but they're going to be involved in serving in some meaningful way. 
So what you have in front of you are 8 to 12 questions. If you ask everyone that's listed there, there's 12 of them. And because you really want to find out, by the end of session one, you need to make an informed decision. Am I going to treat this person as a Christian or as a non-believer? And that needs to be an informed decision. So here, here's the point. Extensive data gathering is going around these big circle of the wheel of life, eight key areas to probe. In each one of those, I'm encouraging you to ask multiple questions in that one area, like husband-wife relationships. Then you leave it, and you go to parent-child relationships, and you're going to ask three to six, four, or three to five, four to six questions about that. And when you go to work and school obligations, you're going to ask three to five or four to six questions about that. That's intensive data gathering in each one of those areas. Now, let's move on. Here is some homework for you folks as counselors. And um, I'd just like to urge you to seriously consider following through on this presentation by doing these things. First of all, I would encourage you to prepare a session number one template that includes the eight major categories of extensive data gathering and four to seven probing questions in each area. In other words, sit and think, okay, uh, what's my agenda? And if when I do data gathering next time, I'm going to start by asking for their life history. Then I'm going to ask questions about their spiritual life. And you go through this outline that I gave you, but under each one, you put three to five or four to six key questions that you're going to ask. Then second, you would modify the template uh, as appropriate for each new counselee. And point C, you would seek to seek better questions to improve your data gathering template. And again, I apologize for, I don't know what happened with the PowerPoint, but um, it's not right. So I apologize for that. But the point is, you're going to prepare a session number one template. If you will do what I've suggested here, then in your next <clears throat> session number one, it, your data gathering will be organized, it'll be systematic, and it'll be extensive. That's how you do it. And um, this is part of what I taught Brenda, so that later, after some further training, when she came back and had another session number one, it was completely different than the one we started with. Again, the problem wasn't her love for Christ or her commitment to biblical counseling. The problem was her methodology. And um, so I think you'll find this to be very, very helpful to you if you will do it. So in conclusion, and then we'll maybe take uh, some questions if you have any. Uh, point A. <clears throat> um, individuals frequently request counseling to talk about one or two major issues in their life. However, there are usually things happening in other areas of life that are affecting the presentation problems. If the counselor does not learn about those influencers, the advice given about the presentation problems will oftentimes seem shallow inappropriate, and maybe even foolish. Do the assigned homework, then use your template, and this will not happen to you because your data gathering will be organized, it will be systematic, and it will be extensive. So. Okay, questions? Yes, ma'am. No. 
Yeah. 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 The the personal data. Okay. The questions about how does the personal data inventory and the basic information quest, questionnaire fit with what I'm advising? Yeah. The the personal data inventory and the basic information questionnaire, which you're going to have in your possession 48 hours before the session, that should inform your data gathering, but not control it. Yeah, you read it, but then that may help influence some of the things that are in your um, in your template. You know, for example, huh? Yeah, yeah. But what I see happening regularly with people I'm supervising is we begin to supervise them. People allow the personal data inventory to control the data gathering rather than inform it. And if you do that, you're going to miss major areas. And um, so, yeah, that's why you want it ahead of time because you'll pick up some things. I want to ask some questions about this when I'm gathering data. Yes, sir. When you're gathering data, do you typically just say, okay, this is going to be session one? Or would you say, okay, I gathered data session one. It would be helpful to even gather more data in session two. And how typically would you would you give guidelines to your uh, your counselors that you're supervising about how much data gathering or how many case or sessions that they should devote to get data. Yeah. Okay, the questions about uh, how much time is devoted to um, data gathering in session number one and so forth. Um, session number one should be primarily data gathering, but that's not all that you do. So here would be kind of a chronology, and I talk more about this in a workshop that I've done. I may have done it here in the past about how to get your counseling off to a good start, but let me just summarize a key part. Uh, I and I say this to all the people that I'm supervising, you need to remember that when people come to counseling, they're not coming to, to find a new friend. I mean, their, their heart's breaking, they're looking for help, and th- you ought to view this as more of a business meeting rather than a social gathering. I mean, so for me, that means when people come in for the first time, I greet them, tell them I'm looking forward to getting to know them. I'll ask, did you have any trouble finding the church or uh, how'd you hear about us or, man, it's been hot today, hasn't it? Or, I mean, just something. That takes about three or four minutes, what I call chit-chat. And then I'll say, well, listen, I know we got some important things to talk about. And I usually say to them, uh, there's one verse in the the Bible that's going to really influence how I deal with you in this first get-together. And that verse is Proverbs 18, verse 13, which says, he who answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame to him. Which means that God says, if I try to give you advice about these matters that you've written about on your forms, if I give you advice without taking more time to understand your circumstances and to hear what's going on, God says, I'm a fool. I don't want to be a fool in God's eyes, and you don't want lousy advice. So what I need to do is ask more questions, and um, I just need you folks to be open and honest with me not send me on a fishing expedition for the truth. And my goal is that by the end of the session, I'll be able to give you some initial direction to get us headed toward long-term solutions. Sound all right to you? Everybody always says yes. And I say, okay, well, let's, uh, I'm very much aware I need God's help. Let me lead us in prayer. And I pray. And then when I say amen, I mean, my if you're watching, I mean, my physical demeanor changed. Up until this point, I've been kind of leaning back in the chair. But when I say amen, I scoot up, I pick up my pen. And from that point on, my I am a detective trying to figure out what's going on. 
And for about the next 45 minutes, I'm going to be one question after another. And it'll be very intense. Where a lot of people get in trouble, I see, I end up saying this to many people I supervise, is minimize the running commentary. You don't have to comment on everything they say. If you do, it'll just, you'll never get done. And so I just say, you ask questions. You're gathering data. But there'll come a point, for me it's usually about 45 minutes later, when I'll say, okay, um, and you, if you're going to get around the, the wheel, you got to keep moving. You can't park anywhere. you got to keep moving because your goal is to get the big picture. And um, so you explain that. People seem to understand that. And then for me, 45, 50 minutes into the session, I want to minister the Word of God to them, and I want to do something to point them toward Christ and toward a life of biblical obedience. And then i got to write out the change and growth plan, give it to them. So I try to make the first session somewhere between an hour, an hour and 15 minutes. But if you're going to do that, you've got to keep moving. And there's, you can always say to people, you know, I may want to come back and talk about this in the next session, but for right now, let's move on. Because, again, the goal, you're trying to get the big picture. So that's why I talk about the helicopter view, not the ground-level view. So, Okay, yes, we've got time for maybe one more question. Okay, that's- Yeah. Yeah. All right. The questions uh, about if you have a counselee that uh, is just very verbose and keeps talking and going on and on and, and makes it hard for you to move on. Uh, yeah. A couple of things. First of all, some counselees will do that out of a sincere desire to be helpful. I mean, they're just wanting to be open and honest. And you know, you'll ask for a sentence, they'll give you a paragraph. You ask for a paragraph, they'll give you a chapter. And um, you, you don't need that. And so what you may need to do is to just stop and say, you know, uh, the, what the phrase I use is, I just looked at my clock, and it's moving faster than we are. And we got to pick up the pace here. And um, so what I, uh, what I advise is I say to my counselees, my goal right now is to get the big picture. And if I think you've told me enough on response to a particular question, uh, I'm going to interrupt you. It's not because I'm not interested. I'm very interested. In fact, I'm, I want us to keep moving toward long-term solutions. And so I'm going to keep us moving along. So if I interrupt you, please understand us. I care enough to interrupt and keep us moving toward long-term solutions. Would that be all right with you? Everybody always says yes at that point. And then you just interrupt. You have to. You have to take control of the session. Uh, there are times when people will talk, usually not so much in session one, but in others, they talk because they don't want you talking. And it's a, it's a manipulative device to keep you from getting to the real issues. But, you know, part of that's what you just have to figure out. But you've got to take control of the session and keep the data gathering moving. And I have found people are not offended if you make them understand, here's the goal, here's why I'm doing this. I want to get the big picture, but then I want us to get moving toward long-term solutions. That's why they came. And um, so it's non-offensive. You've got to do that. That was something that was a little bit of a challenge for me to learn because I grew up in a home where we were taught you do not interrupt people when they're talking. And, um, And I don't like, personally don't like being interrupted. 
So I had to wrestle with that. But then I had, just, I had come to understand, look, this is not a social gathering. You know, in social gatherings, you say something, then I say something. Then you say something, then I say something. And it's been really helpful to me, and it's been helpful to several of the people I'm supervising. They've told me, it was helpful when you told me biblical counseling is not a social gathering. It's a business meeting. And when I started thinking about it in those terms, it changed. Because in the business meeting, I've run business meetings, I'm in charge. When I'm running the business meeting, that's it. I'm running it, you see. And so you think about a counseling session, it's, it's, a, it's a small group business meeting. You're in charge. And you've got to keep moving on the agenda. So, Okay, you've listened well. Thank you for that. I've enjoyed being with you this time. God bless you. And your next session will start in 15 minutes. Enjoy your break.